I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. ES Audio. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. I'm Nick Clark. I'm Nancy Durrant. We're halfway through 2023, which is frankly a bit alarming, but to mark that, we thought we'd put together a special episode for you, highlighting the shows that have really blown us away this year so far. We'll be replaying snippets from our interviews and reviews. You can, of course, find the full episodes in our show notes. So, should we kick things off, Nancy? Yeah, let's. So, first off, it's Operation Mincemeat at the Fortune Theatre. This show has done so well and it's so much fun. They've been extended again, I think for a second time now until November, which is fantastic. I'm so pleased for them. Oh, they're just smashing it, aren't they? Just oh, it's so brilliant. flipping fun. <laughs> oh my God, I recommend it to absolutely everybody. I mean, it's been around for a while, but in various venues. But the idea was, or, or the question was, can it make it in the West End? And I think it's answered that question resounding, fairly comprehensively. Resounding, yes. <laughs> resounding, yes. Uh, we spoke to Natasha Hodgson and David Cumming, two of the uh, members of Spit Lip, which is something I always get wrong, yeah. uh, the company that made it before the show opened. So it's 1943 and we are currently the Allies losing the war. Uh-oh. Oh no, not a good situation for us. Um, and Churchill has basically rounded up his weirdest guys, uh, that's a technical term, uh, to say we need some strange ideas in which to to try and make Hitler and his troops move away from mainland Europe because they are all over it at the moment and it's no good for us. And so, yeah, one of the crazy ideas that he came up with um, with them alongside uh, people like Ian Fleming, who was working for um, MI5 at the time, was this mission Operation Mincemeat, which was essentially to dress up a homeless corpse as a, a military man, throw him in the sea via a submarine, wash him up in Spain, hopefully, uh, containing fake documents about a, a mission to, to where we're going to arrive in Europe. All of it fake and hope that Hitler found it, that his troops delivered it to him and that it would make him move a load of troops so we could enter Europe uh, faithful and easily. Easy. And s- simple as that, really. Natasha also told us that her brother, who is a vet and who she thought had absolutely nothing of value to offer to the discussion, actually ended up inspiring their creation. So basically, we, we've been trying to, we've been a comedy troupe um, for, for a bit, putting a little bit more of music every single time because we just can't, we couldn't help ourselves. Every single new show, it was like, is there another song in this? Yeah, we love, we love our we songs. Just Come on. And we basically had to admit to ourselves that we were essentially at this point sort of starting to write musicals. Yeah, it was a horrible um, realisation. It was terrible. We're still not over it, honestly. <laughs> 
<laughs> we wanted to base it on a true story um, just because we thought that would give us like a good backbone. We'd never written a musical before, but we were struggling to find something. And I was on holiday um, with my family uh, and my younger brother, who was vet, uh, so didn't, you know, doesn't really know about this creative stuff, as I enjoy <laughs> telling him, was like, just took out his headphones and was like, I know a thing that should be a musical. I'm listening to a podcast on it right now. And I was like, Joe, listen, stick to the cows and the sheep. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, but unfortunately, it was about Operation Mince Me. It was a Stuff You Should Know podcast about Operation Mince Me. And I listened to it and thought, well, crap, he's done it. And I sent it to the rest of the guys. And unfortunately, we thought to ourselves, are we really going to make a musical about World War II? Yeah, I mean, initially I was like, you are having a He was not happy. Absolutely not. And then I listened, I was like, oh, for God's sake. There's, there's, there's crazy corpses, there's mad pilots, there's coroners, yeah. there's secret agents doing mad stuff not, everywhere. It's just not the World War II that you ever get taught about. You're like, wait a sec, this is bonkers and this fun and silly and mad. mad. We've got to mention the music. Uh, our favourite songs, well, we have many favourite songs. Let's start with Born to Lead. What this country needs is a genius plan. What this country needs is a genius man. For some were born to follow. But we were born to lead. And you know what I absolutely loved and was destroyed by Dear Bill. Oh. Why did we meet in the middle of a war? What a silly thing for anyone to do. And I'm trying my best to Absolutely brilliant, that song. Then there was Making a Man. So you say you want the perfect body. I've got every kind that you could need. And I was a particular fan at the beginning of the second act of Das Ubermensch. No other show are you going to see German electro Nazi boy band. <laughs> I guarantee it. <laughs> uh, and then there was a gorgeous sea shanty. Like I said in our review, I started singing it in the shower about a week later. It was just beautiful. To be fair, once you hear most of the songs, they'll stay lodged in your head and go round and round and round. Next up, it's Shirley Valentine. This was on at the Duke of York's Theatre. Now, I didn't see this uh, this one, but you, Nancy, and Nick Curtis did. Yeah, it was it was a slightly mixed review from us, but it was really the talk of the town, this show, mm. and it sold one hell of a lot of tickets. Every single ticket. Every seemed. single <laughs> ticket, in fact. Yeah, it was, show, I mean, Sheridan Smith, it, it's a one-woman show, as you know, and, you know, we found it a little bit dated, but she did the most incredible job and elevated it into something really quite special, I thought. And the crowds just love her. They lapped it up. Here's the two of you talking about it at the time. It requires just the sort of warmth and empathy which is very much her stock in trade. She has, I think, an almost unique ability to communicate directly with an audience. Yeah. Um, in this play, the character does actually talk directly to the audience, but even, I would say, all the way through her career, you feel that she's just talking to you. Uh, she, that's exactly what I thought. She's got this warmth and this kind of particularly in something like this where she has to just simply talk to the audience. She's got this kind of conspiratorial air so that you feel like she's speaking to the people in front of her, not just the audience, inverted commas, you yes. know? I went on a Saturday night. It was, you know, completely sold out and the audience were absolutely lapping it up. Yeah. They loved her. And I'd say about maybe quarter to a third of them were there basically just to worship at the altar of Sheridan Smith. Yes, yeah. And nothing wrong with that. I mean, no, I think that's one of, one of the altars that is probably worth, yeah, worth worshipping at. 
Next, it was the fantastic Lehman trilogy, which hit the West End, the Gillian Lynn Theatre, earlier this year. And for a show that clocks in well over three hours, yeah. it's a stunner. It really is. It really doesn't feel like that at all, does it? And no. I mean, also a show which is about an international bank. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, you know, it doesn't, on paper, doesn't, doesn't strike you as an absolute smasher, but no. my God, it was good. Um, you interviewed the cast, didn't you, Nick, just after the show opened? I did. Nigel Lindsay, Michael Balligan and Hadley Fraser. And we talked about the extraordinary physical feat of playing so many characters over the space of well, what must have been about three hours and 20 minutes. And they were absolutely fascinating about it. Can I start with you, Hadley, and then we'll... Yeah, Mike and I were talking about this the other night, actually. Uh, You know, I've done quite a few musicals. I know Nigel has as well. And and there's something that are physically quite demanding. You know, you're dancing and running around and changing Mm. costumes. You've done Phantom and Les Mis. Yeah, all the... City of Angels. All those, yeah. yeah. And they can certainly be physically tiring. This one is unlike anything I've done just because of the mental... Uh, fatigue, I think, that accumulates. And because all three of us are on stage the whole time, and it probably, apart from when Nigel sets us up brilliantly at the beginning, when Mike and I are waiting to come on for, what is that? 10, 15 15 minutes. Beyond that point, when none of us is ever really out of action for more than about 10 seconds. So you never have that sort of fallow period that you might expect in another production where you can reset or re-energise or sort of cancel something that's gone wrong. I don't know. Very few performers may experience this because it is a three-hander and it's three hours long and you're always on apart from the time where night isn't. So I've, like me, me and like Hadley said, we were speaking about when you come off, I've lost weight, like just from doing the show. And it's a different kind of energy. You you need to fuel up. You need to have those vitamins. You need to get the water in. You need the carbs. You need the cashew nuts. You need them. Because if you don't have them, you I don't know, you just feel a little flag or you'll drop a line. And it's a real testament to staying in the moment as well. Like yesterday, I've flipping cut out a page of text. Because, because <laughs> well, you know, Sam Mendes isn't going to hear this, is he? But yeah, I cut out a page of text because I was thinking about a moment that I wasn't in. And it's a real skill in just, you know, taking care of yourself. So this is, this is I've never done anything like this. And I did a one-man show at the National, you know, where it's just me on stage playing multiple characters. This is a different kind of beast. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I met Simon Russell Beale for a, a coffee and... Uh, who had the role Who, who had the role own. before, yeah. yeah. And um, he was saying to me, it's not like King Lear in terms of the emotional wreckage that you have, but it's just as taxing physically and mentally in a different way. This, you're never off stage. And as Sam Mendes said, don't show them the gears that you're going into. So if you're about to play the wife of Bobby Lehman, don't go, hey folks, watch this. I'm gonna turn my collar up and here I, just do it. And that is really difficult to do, I find. That was Hadley Fraser, Michael Balligan and Nigel Lindsay. And for any budding actors out there, Nigel Lindsay, who played the role of Henry Lehman, amongst many others, also told us how to get a job with Sam Mendes. No, I, I went to see the show with Patrick Marber. Sam Mendes happened to be in that night. And we were in the canteen in, back at the National. And uh, I just went up to him and said, listen, Sam, why aren't I in this? I was a stockbroker. I'm Jewish. My grandfather stowed away on a boat to New York in 1920. I mean, it's tailor-made, and he, he giggled. And then when he asked me to do it, he said to me, do you know, remember that time we had a chat about four or five years ago, and you said, why aren't I in it? I said, oh, yeah, did I say that? I did say that. He said, I remembered. 
And I thought, in the 30 years I've been doing this, that's never worked. I always say to young actors, don't go and bug people because it never works. <laughs> but it did. So, so there you go. Now, this one is super recent. Uh, the Accidental Death of an Anarchist. We only just reviewed this one. Uh, starring Daniel Rigby, it transferred to the West End from the Limerick Hammersmith just a couple of weeks ago. Ah, uh, yes, you poor lads. It must be so hard to keep track of all the investigations these days. We're doing our best. <laughs> if only that were true. No, this one is concerning a recent death that happened in police custody. OK, might need to narrow it down. <laughs> is it one of the unsuitable use of force ones? No, no, it's the window one, which a young anarchist accidentally fell from, indeed. This is the Daniel Rigby show. Oh there is God. no doubt about that. As, Such a performance. I mean, he was a comedian i think he did stand up back in the day and you can really see it oh yeah it's in his bones isn't it mm. they are funny funny bones mm. i think that there is nothing i've seen that is quite as amusing as daniel rigby trying to get off a table yeah. <laughs> for quite some time <laughs> and uh, yeah and in his interview with nick curtis a few weeks ago he revealed how comedy really is his first love there's a lovely overlap um in a way with the part because the maniac it's kind of unique i can't really think of another play that has a character in it that has the relationship with the audience that the maniac does. Yeah. It's a constant sort of interactive relationship, which does remind me of stand-up yeah. sometimes. There's not so much direct address, um, but there is, you know, the nodding and the winking, and there are occasional intervals where there is a there is a moment or two that the maniac has with the audience directly, and it, that does remind me of 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 gigs and yes. that dynamic. So. Uh, do you no longer perform stand-up? Is this, is this something in the past for you or do you still occasionally go back and flex those muscles? Oh, well, I mean, I've, I, yeah, I've not done it for absolutely ages. So yeah, I guess it's in the past I see. at the moment. Do you feel more at home in comic roles? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. I mean, comedy's, com- com- comedy's my first love, really. I mean, mm. the only reason I ever became a performer was to make people laugh and because there's no, there's no um, educational route into doing comedy necessarily but there is to act you can do an acting course at a dra- or apply yes. to do an acting course at a drama school um that was that was you know why i ended up doing that so yeah comedy is definitely the first love the thing about that performance though is it must take the most unbelievable stamina and i think he talked yeah. about that as well didn't he it's an incredible physical performance but also a vocal one i was really worried for your voice oh, <laughs> through you? the course of the performance oh, yeah sorry about that that's all. No, no, no i mean i got over it do you have to sort of pace yourself through the course of it because it seemed he is a maniac and it does seem to exist on a on a constant pitch of mania yeah yeah um i mean i did make a rod for my own back with a lot of the choices that i made in the rehearsal room and i think over the course of a 13 week run we'll see how it goes luckily i never really had a problem with my voice or or my body either mm. there was no there was never any injury hopefully it will last but it is a kind it's something that i have to sort of keep an eye on and modulate because it is delivered at a fever pitch which sort of feels like it's it f- feels like it supports the it supports the play doing it at that level, yeah. but it is demanding. You can find that interview with Daniel Rigby as well as with Natasha and David for Operation Mincemeat and with the cast of the Lehman Trilogy down below in this show's description. Right, time for a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Coming up in part two, more of our favourite shows of the year so far. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Eddie Izzard. My name is also Susie Izzard. And you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Well done. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Should we get into some more shows, Nick? Let's do it. It's Groundhog Day. (laughs) This is back in London again after a seven-year hiatus. And it's had a long old journey to get here. I mean, it started with a film some 30 years ago, but it was turned into a musical by Tim Minchin and the original uh, film's writer Danny Rubin. Uh, some seven years ago, where it premiered at the Old Vic before going on to Broadway, where despite the rapturous uh, reception in the UK, it didn't really live up to its billing. Yeah, I think it just it just opened at the same time as some serious shows like Dear Evan Hansen, and it just I think it just got swallowed a bit, which was a shame. And then, of course, there was a pandemic, but now it's back again. And uh, Tim and Danny explained to us what it was like taking the film to stage. I think I understood intuitively that you can't turn Groundhog Day the movie into a stage musical. You can turn Groundhog Day, the screenplay, Groundhog Day, the story, the Danny Rubin story. You can take that and you can, you know, you can use the the beats that the movie uh, utilised to make a musical, but that you can't make the same thing, nor should you even try. That you can't put Bill Murray on stage. The the tone of the humour, even the kind of politics of the time. You you actually have to go back to what I saw as the source text, which was the screenplay, not the movie. The movie's sort of no good to me, because I'm looking for a totally different or more or something. I'm looking for the the things that can sing. And it's a totally different form. I didn't go back and watch the movie. I just went, Danny, give us the best version of the screenplay that you think is the kind of canon and uh, we'll work from that. And and that freed me from wondering how we were going to get Bill Murray on stage because the answer was we weren't. I also wasn't trying to re- redo the movie in any way. For me, the what I'd written before it became a movie was already mine and I already felt strongly about it. And it felt like a... a kind of classic story that any storyteller, a storybook, a musical, a novel, different people approaching it would be able to tell the same story and bring different things to it. And I saw by changing the medium to a musical, it would bring out different strengths than the movie did without comparing it to the movie. Tim Minchin also told us what he looks for when scouting out an idea for a new musical. I don't see many stories that scream stage musical to me, and I don't see many stage musicals that I think, oh, I wish I'd written that. You know, like I, I mostly feel a bit like they're sort of stumbling on a shiny bit of gold in a pile of rubble. Like 
I don't know what the next story is. I'm, I'm overdue to have a crack at another one. I'm just waiting for the right idea. I quite like to just write one, you know, completely out of whole cloth, but the powers that be tell me that's uh, never works. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, so therefore I might do that. Groundhog Day, the musical, leaves little doors open to ideas. The, the movie, it, it's actually quite a sort of light rom-com, but... The doors that it opens in terms of the big questions, how are we to live? How do you get out of a rut? What do you do? Um, you know, it, it addresses suicide and it addresses the nature of love and it addresses the idea that life is like a day and there's a dawn and a night and the inevitability of death and all these doors that light comes through the crack. We kick them down and walk into that room and spend some time in there. That's what a musical allows you to do. And if you get it wrong, it's mawkish and crass and on the nose because you're like, oh, let's do a song about the nature of life and death. And you do that song and it like ruins it. And it's not up to me to judge whether I got that right or wrong, but it's certainly one's intent is that it illuminates. It doesn't sort of ruin it. I always talk about whether a story has the foundational strength to carry a musical, and this one has it in spades. You can talk about anything because it, it asks all the big questions. That's on at the Old Vic until August the 19th, and I'm particularly excited because while Nick and Nancy loved it, I'm seeing it tomorrow. <laughs> I think what our production has proven is that a lot of people who come to this musical thinking, yeah, I don't know, they come out with their brains blown. Like a lot of huge fans of the movie, including Bill himself, came out going, oh, my God. And now for Dear England. Again, this is, this is a review from one of our more recent shows, which is uh, currently on at the National Theatre. In fact, uh, you and other Nick saw it, but I didn't, and I'm seeing it tonight. I'm super excited. Well... Bring your scarf. I saw that the <laughs> National Theatre had a National Theatre scarf, football scarf. Love it. Um, to wave above your head. And uh, there are several uh, amazing things about this show, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. So what were your top lines from this show? Oh, well, James Graham's done such a good job with this show, especially with Gareth Southgate, played by Joseph Fiennes. I mean... Wow. And this is what we thought of it in our review. James Graham is so good at looking... I think, we, I think we've probably witted on about this before, but he's so good at looking at issues and sort of large subjects through a very a, a narrow and unexpected prism. An oblique, and here, yes. And, and yeah. you know, football, Gareth Southgate is that prism. And that's, yeah. that's sort of amazing. It's, it's such Absolutely. an extraordinary Which vision, brings us to Southgate and the performance of Joseph Fiennes. Oh, I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. I tell my players... But what they are a part of, what we are all a part of, is an experience that lasts in the collective consciousness of our country. Every game has the potential to create a lifelong memory for an England fan somewhere. He comes out and initially you're like, oh, this is Joseph Fiennes playing Southgate. And he just gets the mannerisms. He gets this sort of... The really the mild mannered, but actually very steely. What's really what really comes across here yeah. is this is a man who really is inclusive, but he will not be pushed away from his you know his ideals. So every at every level from the top down, the two Gregs who are running the yeah. football association, down to the, the other staff members who are saying, "You've got to be a man. You've got to be tough. You've got to shout. You've got." And he absolutely rejects all of this. And somehow through Josephine's performance, he brings all of that in. By the end of it, you think you're watching Gareth Southgate. You do, it was you do. absolutely extraordinary. I mean, one thinks of, of Joseph Fiennes as a sort of, you know, strapping, handsome, mm. leading man, mm. and Southgate as a fairly sort of small, um, yeah. wiry figure. But the two 
them just meld completely in this. You're right, he's got the mannerisms, he's got the, the speech patterns yeah. uncannily. It sounds exactly like you're listening to Gareth Southgate, but it's not an impression. It's a fully rounded performance. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. And of course we spoke about that cele- celebratory atmosphere too. It's what theatre audience behaves like a football crowd, don't yeah. they? There's real, you know, enthusiastic cheering and just yeah, joy yeah. sweeping through the, the well, auditorium When the players times. run out and give their clubs, there's people go, boo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. great. It's what, it's well, I mean, James Graham has always said that he wants, you know, he wants to make theatre, which is political, but also popular. As a football fan of a certain age, uh, hearing Fat Les's Vindaloo in the <laughs> Olivier Auditorium yeah. was hilarious. I mean, it's slightly anachronistic because it came out in 98, but it speaks wider to that laddish, toxic yeah, sort of culture yeah. of like, we beers and pies and yeah. all that stuff. And then about how they get rid of that, but getting the whole audience on his feet to sing Sweet Caroline. Yeah. I mean, that is, <laughs> you, in terms of theatrical experiences of the year, that is right up it there. Is. And last, but by no means least, we have Sleepover at the Bush Theatre. Don't tell me you've been wearing that the whole time you travelled here. Uh, I didn't want to waste any time changing. That same bomb that you sat on the bus with is the same one you want to share a mattress with me. Did we not get on the same bus? Did I sit on the bus? I don't even touch the poles. <laughs> this show we absolutely adored. Um, this was such a lovely story that kind of celebrated a female teenage friendship uh, among a number of girls and at the sort of end of their school career, trying to kind of navigate becoming women. And it was just, it was just gorgeous. This is why it's impossible not to fall in love with. It effectively starts on a 16th birthday sleepover, doesn't yeah, it? They exactly. all get together for a sleepover to celebrate Shan's 16th birthday, yeah. I believe, don't they? Exactly. And uh, they're millennials, so they are 16 in 2016, they are 18 in 2018. And I'm not giving much away if they say at the end of the play, we're looking forward to a great 2019. Oh, boy. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, good luck, girls. Um, but we see them sort of navigate grief and health issues. Shan has um, sickle cell disease, uh, parental relationships and love of kind of all kinds, really. Um, Absolutely. Various, Sexuality of all kinds. They, yeah. they sort of explore, don't they? Exactly. Well. And, and at various kind of sleepovers, sort of sleepovers, like, I kind of feel like the sleepover conceit she sort of lets it slide a little bit towards yeah. the end, I think. It's a bit, but you know, some which of their is, houses... Which is fine. Which is which totally is fine because you don't need to stick to it. You know, you just they just get together. They get yeah. together in homes. They're never anywhere else except when they go to prom, which is a really fantastic scene, I yeah, think. Yeah, great scene. Um, but yeah, I adored it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was... It's very specific to the um, millennial young black female experience and that friendship. And and the East London experience. And East they London, don't actually yes. know how Chiswick is pronounced. No, yeah, oh God, that was brilliant. <laughs> but it's it's also really universal in the, you know, the the way that teenage girls interact and joke and profess love and support and compete, often within the same conversation. That felt so authentic and natural to me. I absolutely agree. I I, I think the the wonderful thing about this was the the naturalness of, mm. of it and the looseness of it in mm. some ways. Every single performance of this is being done as a relaxed performance. So yeah. people are invited to respond to the play respectfully, but in any way that they wish. They're invited to come and go as they please. I don't recall seeing anyone come and go the night we were no. both there. But the wave of appreciation and enjoyment and savour coming off that audience uh, was extraordinary that night. Um, they're, they're all of, um, of different heritages, aren't they, as well? Yeah. There's a strong Nigerian Yoruba tradition yep. running through the play. Yeah, I think for Funmi is the sort of strongest, um, closest yep. to that for yep. her. There's also a big sort of Christian thing going on between yep. them as well, isn't it? Which again, you you rarely see this sort of stuff discussed on stage. Yeah, and in such true. a natural 
way. It's just a part of their upbringing, um, which they're grappling with alongside all these all these other things. Yeah. Um, I feel like the brilliance of the writing and indeed the acting in this play, in Sleepover, you almost don't notice it because it's so natural and you forget that you're watching a play. To me, increasingly, I think the mark of a successful show is is you sort of disappearing into it mm. and forgetting yourself a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, not that they are in the theatre. Yes. And I, I, this is just, it's so, so brilliant. And remarkably, I think three or four members of the cast made their stage debut in this too. A lot of attention focused on Bucky Bat-Cray, who uh, came to prominence through the film Rocks. She yeah. was plucked from school to appear in Rocks. So. Yeah, and by the way, if you haven't seen Rocks, seek it out. She is fantastic in this, but she is absolutely equaled by yeah. uh, by the other three on stage with her. Of the of the others, Alia Adolphin is the only one who's ever, I think she's been in one play before. Yeah. They've all had screen credits, but they're just extraordinary. But Shade Sinclair, I think, is still at drama school. She is still at drama it's school. Amazing. That's absolutely right, yes. Um, and, and they convince us, um, not just as individuals, but as a group as well, don't yeah. they? The dynamics are so well observed. They this. really are. They're just, they're just, they're just, you fall in love with them and their lives it's it's really super yeah i mean it's been a great few months for the bush theater oh it's been a, it's been a great year i think they've had some really amazing stuff and they've got great stuff coming up they're bringing back red pitch which was a show can't wait that, another oh, football show another football show it's <laughs> More a, football there's a trend on stage. there's a trend um which is like really super exciting and i think it's just such a brilliant thing mm. and they also did a great show with uh, lenny henry his first written stage play, a one-man show called August in England, and we met Lenny and Lynette uh, to talk about it. August in England was inspired by the Windrush scandal that we've all been going through pre-lockdown and through lockdown and post-lockdown. Like everybody, I was horrified by the things I was reading, and it made me want to do something, because Lynette and I were talking about, well, what are we going to do at the bush then? You've got to come down. Lynette is very persistent. When you come into the bush, man, every time I saw her, so I, I had this thing that it should be about the Windrush, post-Windrush, because my mum came over in 58. She didn't come over on the Windrush. Right. She was very annoyed when there were no camera crews there to meet her and ask her to sing a calypso or something. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, those people have problems too. You know, my sister Kay came over on my dad's passport. So this could have happened to any of my older brothers and sisters. So it's really lived with me in my heart. And watching people talking about it on the telly and listening to them, it's really moved me because they came here first when streets were cold and uh, worked very, very hard. And what's happened is they're being treated in a way that is not commensurate to their effort, to their input to the country. Mm. So I feel that August is a bit like that. He's worked hard, he's paid his taxes, he's paid his dues. And uh, why is he being treated like this? We don't know. So the play is an attempt to show us a man being hit by a double-decker bus mm. late in life. Listening to our contributors talk about their personal experiences, it was incredibly moving, but it, it makes us, it makes me very angry because yeah. you're literally listening to something and you're like, what? The whole time? How, is, how did that happen? Yeah. How was it allowed to happen? Why wasn't it stopped sooner? Why wasn't it reported sooner? Why, you know, all of those questions, mm. it really doesn't make any sense. That's it for this special episode of the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Make sure to give us a follow so you never miss a new one. Plus, a nice big rating would be lovely. As we said, you can find all of the shows discussed on this episode in the show notes. You can also find our reviews and interviews online at standard.co.uk. Thanks as ever to our producer, Rachel Abbott, and the podcast is back next Sunday. See you then. Mm.